that it's the only one. And there are other obstacles that also have to be dealt with. American policy in relation to this, Japanese policy in relation to it, and also non-agricultural market access on behalf of the G20 countries. Now, my view is, if there is a willingness on behalf of those others to put a bolder offer on the table, we in Europe should be prepared to go back and revisit our own policy in relation to this. That is what uh, we are trying to organise at the present time. There is a very important meeting coming up shortly between the European Union and the Latin American countries. I know President Lula of Brazil is absolutely committed to making this World Trade Round succeed. I think it is vital that it succeeds, not just for the poorest countries, though particularly for them, but for the whole of the world. And I will be doing everything I can to make sure that Europe, America, Japan and the G20 countries all put more ambitious offers on the table. Stephen Pound. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. For 16 years, I sat on Ealing Council while our neighbourhoods went to hell in a handcart and the response of the party opposite was to introduce the Sheehy Report, the biggest body blow to police morale in history. Will the Prime Minister publicly acknowledge the vital role of police and PCSOs in finally making our neighbourhoods safer? Yeah. Well. Yes, I will. I think I can say confidently I will. And the record numbers of police, the new powers, the community support officers, the new powers where they are used by local authorities make a real difference to community safety. And what my honourable friend says is absolutely right. David Cameron. I join the Prime Minister with what he said about Peter Law on behalf of the official opposition. Our thoughts and our prayers are with his family. The government was told in July last year that there was a massive problem with foreign prisoners being released and not considered for deportation. The prisoners released onto Britain's streets included murderers, rapists and paedophiles. Does the Prime Minister accept that the measures taken after the government was told about the problem were completely insufficient? First of all, let me say that I fully accept and regretted that until recently the system for identifying and where possible deporting foreign nationals who have served sentences in UK jails has been seriously and fundamentally at fault. And if I can just answer the direct question that the Right Honourable Gentleman put. Last July, the proposal was put up that there should be a substantial expansion both of the funding and of the staff to look after this particular aspect of the Immigration and Nationality Department work. That actually happened. There was almost three million extra pounds put into um, financing the system adequately. In addition to that, the numbers of staff have been built up. And as a result of that, although it has taken time to put the proper system in place now, since the 1st of April, all of the cases are now considered pre-release. I think there's one other piece of information that I should give to the House. It is, of course, a matter of deep regret, as the Home Secretary said, that since 1999, and we have the figures since 1999, because that is when records actually were first kept, the system has been in place for many decades. But of those 1,023 cases, it is important that people understand those were the cases where there should have been consideration pre-release from prison. However, in a third of those cases, they either have subsequently been considered or are under consideration, and many of those people... Um, have been deported. Now, I agree, however, 
that that still means that the system was not working adequately, which is why the changes I've just described were put in place. But this, I'm afraid, just isn't good enough. We, we, now know, we now know, even after ministers were told about the problem in July, that 288 prisoners were released without being considered for deportation. Why did the Home Secretary last night describe that as very, very few people? Of the 288, again, it is important to emphasise that already... Many of those, I think over 70 of them, have been considered. Indeed, some of them have been deported. But it is correct that all of them must now be considered. And the point that I'm making to the right honourable gentleman is, from last year, extra resource and extra staff... Order. Uh, when the Prime Minister has asked the question, he must be allowed to answer. Uh, order. Uh, order, Mr Forth. I'm not, I'm not looking for your opinion at this stage. I'm saying that... <laughs> I'm saying the Prime Minister must be allowed to answer. Prime Minister. From last July, as I say, there were procedures put in place to increase the number of staff and increase the resourcing of the unit concerned. That has taken time to build up, but those 288 cases, as I was just saying a moment or two ago, many of them, over 70, have already been considered or are being considered. Some of those people have already been deported. All of those cases will be considered, and since the 1st of April, the system is now working properly, so that for the first time ever, everybody who is identified pre-release has their case considered. But the Prime Minister simply hasn't answered the question about what the Home Secretary said last night. Let us be clear about what the Home Secretary said on television. When asked whether anyone was released after he was told about it, the Home Secretary replied, I'm not prepared to say no one, but certainly very, very few people. Given that the actual number was 288, that was completely misleading. This... This, this Home Secretary has presided over systemic failure. He's failed to deal with it, and he has last night misled people about the scale of the problem. Isn't it clear that he cannot give the Home Office the leadership it so badly needs? Well, it's surprising that I don't agree with that. The Home Office... The Home Office have given the figure of 288. Indeed, the reason why we can give figures is that there is a proper case management system now in place. And as I say, it is the reason we give the figures since 1999 is that that is the first time any figures have been kept. I would also point out that over the last two years, there have now been over 3,000 deportations. Indeed, since last October, there have been 800 deportations. But let me repeat again, since the 1st of April, all cases have been considered pre-release, and of the 288 to which he's referred, those cases will be considered, some have already been considered, and deportations followed. We, we actually learnt this morning that the Home Secretary offered to resign. That actually contradicts what Downing Street said yesterday. They were asked, has Charles Clark or anyone else offered to resign? And they replied, no. That is the sort of thing, Mr Speaker, we've just come to expect routinely from this government. Can the Prime Minister answer this? When the Home Secretary offered to resign, did the Prime Minister know that even after the government was told about systemic failure, 288 prisoners were released without being considered for deportation? I do not accept that the Home Secretary did not act on this matter. He did act for the very reasons that I have given and in the way that I have just described. 
The fact of the matter is that there has been action as a result of people realising that there were cases that should have been considered pre-release that were over only considered post-release. There is now a system in place, however, for the first time since these procedures began, which will allow us to make sure that all cases are considered pre-release and deportations follow. A thousand prisoners have been released onto our streets when they should have been considered for deportation. The Prime Minister doesn't know where they are or how many crimes they've committed since they were released. Isn't this part of a wider story? A government that said it would be tough on crime, releasing dangerous prisoners. A government telling us 24 hours to save the NHS and it's sacking nurses. When a Prime Minister can't even deport dangerous foreign criminals in our jails, aren't the public entitled to ask, enough is enough? First of all, I did give him the facts on the 1,023, and I've already indicated that actually over a third of them already have had their cases considered uh, or are in the course of being considered. And as for the National Health Service, I think, I think people know very well when they compare... The well, it was the right honourable gentleman who raised the National Health Service. I'm quite well aware of the fact my honourable oh. members opposite don't want the answer. Russell Brown. Th thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I say to the Prime Minister, two weeks ago, the Hunter Rubber Company in my constituency went into administration with the immediate loss of some 48 jobs. On moving in, the administrators seized everything, including the employees' holiday fund, later indicating that despite their mistake, they could not refund that money. Thankfully, the DTI Insolvency Unit will rectify the mistake made by the administrators. But does the Prime Minister agree that mistakes made by administrators and the likes should be rectified by them and not left at the mercy of the public purse? I, I agree with my honourable friend entirely in, in respect of that. Um, I am aware of the situation in his constituency, and I'm only sorry that his constituencies have been put through this misery. Sir Mingus Campbell. <laughs> On behalf of my honourable right honourable friends, may I associate myself with the expressions of sympathy which the Prime Minister gave a moment or two ago to the family and friends of Peter Law. Does the Prime Minister feel any sense of embarrassment in presiding over such incompetence as was revealed yesterday? And who will take responsibility for it? As I've explained to the Leader of the Opposition, there has been systemic failure that is entirely accepted and systemic failure over a very long period of time. However, it is also the case that it is only because since 1999 there have been proper records, we know of these numbers of people, and it is also the case that there is now a proper system in place, which is why, as I repeat again, from the 1st of April, for the first time ever in the administration of this system, all cases are considered pre-release. Does the Prime Minister understand that if heads are to roll, and these heads are civil servants, then the public will feel that a lot less than political responsibility has been demonstrated by this government? I'm reminded of these facts. The government had these matters first drawn to its attention in 2002. 288 people have been released since last August. And this morning, at Home House Prison in Stockton-on-Tees, a Nigerian prisoner eligible for deportation was seen to walk free into the community. How can the Home Secretary remain in office? 
How can the Prime Minister not ask for his resignation? For the reason that I gave earlier, which is that the changes that have now been put in place allow us for the first time to make sure that this system operates in the way that it always should. And let me just point out to the Right Honourable Gentleman, yet again, of these cases, the 288, all of them will be considered. Some of them already have been considered. And incidentally, it is as a result of the action taken by the Home Secretary last year, the very time he was talking about the additional money and the additional staff that we now have in place for the first time that robust system. Bob Waring. When the Prime Minister hears about British soldiers losing their lives in Iraq, he usually, in fact I think always and quite correctly, makes a statement from the dispatch box expressing sympathy. Today, in the Houses of Parliament, in Committee Room 16, at 12.30, there will be members of the families of those who have lost their lives in Iraq. Would the Prime Minister spare five or ten minutes to meet them? For the reasons that I have given on many occasions, I yield to nobody, nobody in my support and in my admiration for the work that the soldiers do in Iraq. It is also important, however, from my perspective, and also I believe from the perspective of those who are serving out in Iraq, that they know that we are fully behind the work that they are doing there. They are with, there with a United Nations resolution. They're there with the full support of the Iraqi government. And I believe at this moment it is important that they know that they are doing a job that is right and worthwhile and is absolutely necessary for this country's security. David Amos. What is the rationale behind the decision to remove the British Embassy from the Holy See for the first time since the signing of the Lateran Treaty, closing the Ambassador's residence and then inviting the Pope to visit Britain next year? Is it the Government's intention to showcase the Pope's visit next year by inviting my right honourable friend, the member for North Antrim, to take tea with the Pope. <laughs> First of all, I should say that the, um, we do, of course, have an ambassador and a residence there. It's important that we keep them. But the Foreign Office, like many organisations, will have to undergo changes as to exactly where um, their embassy or residence is situated. And that's for perfectly understandable reasons of cost. But we have an excellent ambassador to the Vatican who's doing an excellent job. Eric Joyce. Mr Speaker, all members of the House recognise uh, the size of the challenge of uh, restoring the Northern Ireland Assembly. Does my right honourable friend agree that the latest report by the Independent Monitoring Commission provides the beginning of a foundation for a successful outcome? Well, I hope very much that it does do so, because the Independent Monitoring Commission report today is important. Um, it's important because it reports both on paramilitary and criminal activity. It is our hope that if this situation continues, we will have sufficient confidence and trust on all sides of the community in Northern Ireland to get the institutions in Northern Ireland, the devolving institutions, back up and running again. This is of vital importance to the future. And as my honourable friend rightly implies, if we look back over the past 10 years, Northern Ireland has come a very, very long way. And it would be obviously tremendous for the people in Northern Ireland, but also for the whole of the United Kingdom, if this could be seen through to a successful conclusion. Adrian Saunders. 
It's estimated that there are around a million undiagnosed diabetics in the United Kingdom. One of the main barriers to them seeking treatment is their fear that diagnosis would lead to a lifetime of injections. That's why it was so disappointing that last week NICE ruled out the alternative system of inhaled insulin being available. The NICE report did not look into that group of diabetics who are put off seeking medical treatment, treatment to control their condition. It only concentrated on the efficacy and costs of existing diabetics being moved to a different regime. Will he look again at this group of people who in the long term are going to cost the health service an enormous amount of money if they don't get the appropriate treatment quickly and the alternative system could be the thing? Minister. Well, I'm very prepared, to, obviously, to, to pass on the remarks that the uh, Honourable gentleman has made to, to NICE, and I, I think it's important, though, that they end up making the right clinical decisions. They, those are things for which I'm not qualified, and, and neither is he. Um, and the way that NICE operates, I think, has generally commanded a great deal of respect. However, let me just say to them, the way that diabetes is being treated in the National Health Service is undergoing considerable change, particularly to allow those who suffer from diabetes greater power and control over their own treatment. How that is done, however, and the safest way to do it, I think has to be left to those who are experts in the field. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Is, is the Prime Minister aware that the TVR car company has announced that it will leave its Blackpool base in six months' time, and that that announcement has caused some very real distress to my constituents? Will he therefore, uh, as a matter of urgency, ask specialist advisers from the DTI to liaise with Blackpool Council and offer advice and support to TVR so that they can look at realistic options to remain in Blackpool? And if, sadly, the company decides to relocate some or all of its operations, that support and advice is given to their skilled workforce to find suitable alternative employment? I can certainly uh, give my honourable friend that assurance, and I'm sorry, obviously, for those of her constituents who, who face the prospect of redundancy. I mean, there is a, a, a well-tried and tested procedure, as she knows now, for dealing with situations where there can be manufacturing or other uh, redundancies as a result of changes in the market. And we will make sure that the full um, infrastructure of um, support, both from Job Centre Plus and from the DTI, is put in place to try to help her constituents. Um, and it is fortunate that as a result of the very strong economy we have and the number of jobs in the economy, we have been able, where similar redundancies have occurred, to provide extra jobs. One other thing I should say to her is that we would be happy also to provide the necessary reskilling and retraining for her constituents. Will, Will the Prime Minister join me in congratulating Dunfermline's Lauder College, Employment and Enterprise, <laughs> who have over the last 18 years successfully helped thousands of people find work in Fife. Will he also investigate the decision by Job Centre Plus not to renew three New Deal contracts for Fife with the College, a decision criticised by the local community, businesses and members on both sides of this House? very happy to congratulate his College on the, on the work that uh, is done there. And I also should, should say to him that I'm obviously not aware of the individual circumstances of the decisions that Job Centre Plus have have, have done, but I am very, very happy to look into it and send him a reply on that subject. Jesus Stewart. 
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My constituents are worried when they read in the newspapers about NHS staff cuts. They're worried despite the fact that in their own constituency in Birmingham they've had a new hospital, 600 million, the first one for 70 years. Will the Prime Minister give me his assurance that the NHS will continue to have the staff, the well-trained and motivated staff, so that we continue to support the reforms on the NHS and don't return to the real crisis, which happened when the Tories tried to dismantle the NHS? Yeah. She's absolutely... Of course, all well, the members opposite can shout, but she's absolutely right. Of course, there are, there are, there are around about 250,000 or more new staff in the National Health Service over these past few years, including, incidentally, 85,000 nurses. And she's right in saying that the Birmingham Hospital's redevelopment will be almost £700 million. Indeed, when this party came to office, most of the NH stock under the previous government was built before the National Health Service was created. That has now changed as a result of the largest ever hospital building programme. And for all the difficulties and challenges of the NHS, we should never forget how much better it is under this Labour government. Prime Minister aware that recorded crime in my borough of Bexley and they have done so, set up these uh, teams a year ahead of target, even though the party opposite yeah. voted against the budget at City Hall. Yeah. Well, of course, the opposition party did vote against the budget that has allowed us in London to roll out safe neighbourhood policing so that they will have neighbourhood policing teams and by the end of this year they will comprise in each of the areas as police sergeant, two police officers, three community support officers, and for the first time, therefore, in London, for years, there will be proper beat patrols back on the streets, which is what people have wanted for ages. This government and the mayor and the local authorities have provided it, and the parties opposite voted against the money for it. Many jobs in my constituency at Evesham Technology depend on a highly successful government scheme, the Home Computing Initiative. Why, without warning, and only days after DTI had offered to its own staff, has the Chancellor Exchequer abolished it? There are, however, other things that we are putting in place in order to help people um, with improving access to technology. For example, there are now going to be some 6,000 centres across the UK, and these centres will allow people to access, at very, very low expense, um, computer technology. But we have to make sure that in any such initiative, we're making sure that we, we obviously balance the revenue that is coming in with the support that is being given. Two of my constituents, Jeanette McLeod and Margaret Pryor, have both received respect awards for taking a stand against antisocial behaviour. Will the Prime Minister join me in congratulating them, but also assuring them and other concerned residents in my constituency that this government will continue to back and support them with tough measures against antisocial behaviour? We certainly will, and I can assure my uh, honourable friend of this, that in places up and down this country, as a result of the extra resource being given and extra numbers of police officers and community support officers, and as a result of the additional powers to tackle antisocial behaviour, things like closing down homes that are used for drug dealing, things like making sure that, for example, vandalism and so on can be dealt with by on-the-spot fines, things like making sure that we can put ASVOs on those people who are out of control and not and not behaving in a respectful and proper way within their community. And each and every one of these measures has been opposed by the Liberal Democrats and many of them opposed by the Conservatives. Are your goals worthy? 
Thank you. Thank you, Mr Speaker. With the only acute hospital in Cornwall closing wards and axing hundreds of jobs, does the, Prime Minister still, does the Prime Minister still really believe that this has been the best year ever for the NHS in Cornwall? Yeah. To the Honourable Lady, as I say to all the people who criticise the NHS and the changes that it's going through, is simply to compare what has happened across the NHS and inject some balance into this debate. The numbers of nurses and doctors are up. The waiting times and waiting lists are down. We have, for some of the main areas of concern a few years ago, like heart disease and cancer, radically improved services. Going to the accident and emergency department today is a quite different experience from a few years ago. And we will continue to make the changes necessary to deliver those reforms. There is a massive resource going in, but the health service cannot always stay as it is. And when we actually examine some of the so-called job losses that are happening, yes, some will involve genuine redundancies. I say so-called for this reason, others don't. They involve redeploying staff to other duties, and in any system that employs over a million people, it is absurd to say everyone carries on doing the same thing in the same way. The programme of investment and reform is right. It is delivering, it will deliver, and we shall keep to it. Michael J. Foster. Um, my right honourable friend will be pleased to know there's a hundred extra nurses in our local hospitals in the yeah. area. In this year alone, 15 extra community nurses and a PCT that is in balance and delivering services. Yeah. But, but, and the but is this, that my SHA is suggesting abolishing my local PCT that has delivered so much. Will my right honourable friend intervene and look at the issue and decide to do something about it? will certainly look carefully at what my honourable friend has said about his local PCT, and I understand there are differing views about the, the amalgamation and, and merger of PCTs. But, of course, he is absolutely right to point out the tremendous improvement that there has been in his area and in constituencies up and down the country. And that is not just as a result of record amounts of investment, all of it voted against by the party officer, but also because of change in reform. And sometimes that change in reform will mean that people are redeployed, will mean that tough decisions are taken in order to sort out financial deficits. But that is precisely why we are able then to say that by the end of 2008, there will be a maximum 18-week wait on an out and inpatient list combined. That is something that would revolutionise the NHS and would end the concept of waiting forever. It is something we are determined to deliver and we will take the tough decisions necessary to do it. John Penrose. Western Supermare Hospital is one of the most efficient in the country, with reference costs roughly 15% below the government's targets over the last two years. Yet yesterday, it had to announce cuts of £11 million and the loss of, according to Unison, up to 60 frontline nursing posts. Given that the Department of Health has so far refused to implement payment by results, which would wipe out that deficit in one year, and has also uh, refused to act on the problem of local primary care trust uh, funding being £11 million below the government's own target capitation figures, would the Prime Minister agree with me that this is not a problem created by local mismanagement, but rather a crisis which has been created by decisions made in Westminster? Will, will the Prime Minister intervene personally? May Minister. I'm happy to, to look into the point he makes about the payment by results and how it applies in his own PCT. But again, let me just say to the Honourable Gentleman that when people talk about cuts in the NHS finances, these, there is on any basis going to be a huge increase in National Health Service financing for his area. I mean, just for example, on 
waiting times. Well, this is where the money has gone to. In the, the uh, Strategic Health Authority that covers his constituency, in 1997, those people waiting over six months for an operation, the number was almost 12,000. Today it is three. Now that may be three too many, but it's a darn sight better than 12,000. And therefore I agree with him. When we introduce new measures of financial accountability, there will be difficulties and there will be posts sometimes not filled or made redundant. But if at the end of that we get a national health service that is fit for purpose in the early 21st century, where those waiting lists come down even further and we get rid of the concept of waiting in the national health service, then that will be change that helps his constituents. So I cannot promise him there will not be difficulty in change in his area or in any other. What I can say is that it is fully worth it to make sure that every pound of that taxpayer's money that's going into the National Health Service is most effectively used. Order.